This is To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, a Learn and Sing production. This is a podcast about great Irish albums. It's named after a My Bloody Valentine song. If you go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast, you'll find links to episode notes and lots of further information on all the albums we've covered so far. So if you're new to the podcast, that's albums by Whipping Boy, Fatima Mansions, Revelino, The Stars of Heaven, Toasted Heretic, Blue in Heaven, Into Paradise, Power of Dreams, and more. And I'd ask that if you've enjoyed any episode to date, then please consider subscribing, liking, and sharing. Now, this is the 13th episode, and it focuses on Starus by Nina Hines. The American music magazine CMJ New Music Monthly once described Nina Hines as an adventurous Irish songstress delivering 21st century folk tunes and dazzling electronic jewels. And I think that's not a bad way to introduce you to Nina. Starus was released back in 2002. It celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. It's a real favourite of mine and it's the youngest album I've featured on the podcast to date. It was the first full-length album from Nina. It followed her debut mini-album, Creation, which came out in 1999. Nina started busking on Grafton Street in the mid-90s and she graduated from Grafton Street to gigs at Dublin venues, the International Bar, the Da Club and Whelan's. Nina supported Stereolab in the Red Box on the 15th of May 1999 and it was my first time seeing her play with a full band and it was a brilliantly confident performance of songs from that period and I couldn't wait to see what she would do next. So after a couple of tours of the US she recorded Starus with David Odlum at Black Box Studio in France. Now, Dave Odlum, of course, had been in the frames and the rest of the Further Birds era lineup of the frames all played on Starus. There are a load of other contributors to the record as well, but the vision is all Nina's. Starus was released a couple of years later to great reviews. Billboard magazine wrote, Standing apart from the current trend of folk-based singer-songwriters, Hines prefers a quirkier approach. Her cookie lyrics are delivered in a sensual, breathy voice, underpinned by sophisticated pop sensibilities, reminiscent of Bjork, and she mixes samples and beats with a more orthodox guitar sound. And it was that use of electronics that Billboard refers to that set Nina apart from her Dublin singer-songwriter contemporaries. These were pop songs, but pop songs with an avant-garde edge to them. Nina grew up surrounded by music. She's the youngest of ten and her parents ran the famous O'Donoghue's pub on Dublin's Marion Row. O'Donoghue's, of course, is synonymous with Irish trad and folk music. And from a young age, Nina was collecting glasses and helping out in the bar, listening to trad sessions. In this episode, I chat to Nina about her earliest memories of music, writing her first song at the age of eight, taking up piano and later the guitar, dropping out of college and, as Nina herself says, later earning her degree busking on Grafton Street, being introduced to the French composer and producer Hector Zazu, recording with Zazu and touring throughout Europe with him and the composer Harold Budd, writing and recording Creation and Starus and touring America with label mates Ten Speed Racer. We even talk about that time back in 1994 when she was invited up on stage to sing with Jeff Buckley at the Limelight in Belfast. Nina now lives in Berlin and we chat about her creative life there and her most recent album, last year's Zap. So here we go. To Hear Knows When, Great Irish Albums Revisited, Episode 13, Starus. It's my great pleasure to welcome Nina Hines. When I saw that last email... just feels mad. Isn't Berlin an hour ahead? Yeah. <laughs> I just wasn't thinking. I just wasn't... I just... I don't know. I feel like 
I feel like there's something wrong with my brain when it comes to time lately. I can't, I can't do it. And I'm, I'm working at home a lot and I just don't need to do time that often. My condolences to you, Nina, on your mom's passing. Um, uh, as I was saying to you, I was there a couple of years ago. So, yeah, I understand it's a very, um, it's a stressful time. Yeah. All the more so because you had to travel back, I imagine. It was, it was very stressful getting back because I missed the funeral because I... Um, I went to the airport, I booked the flight for the next day, uh, went to the airport the next day with my son and there was a strike in German airports. There were no flights for 24 hours. I'd never heard of anything since 9-11 like that. Like there were eight airports in Germany shut down and I tried everything. I had like someone working in a, a, what do you call those places where you buy tickets to travel, travel agents. My brother was looking for tickets, like to get me a train to Brussels, to get another flight, to get another flight to London, to get back. Didn't make it. I got there an hour after she was buried. Oh my God. Uh, it was tough. That was the stressful part. And and once I got there, it was fine. And like, you know, Irish funerals, it was a bit of a celebration. Yeah. She was really ready to go. I, I was the youngest of 10 yeah. children. You know, ever since I was little, she used to say to me, oh, well, I'm going to die soon. So I kind of, I kind of grew up with this idea of she's going to die soon, and, and she lasted a long time. She really wanted to go. She really right, wanted to yeah. go. So it feels good, you know. Doesn't feel bad. And I heard your dad last year on Turtle Bunbury's podcast. So he's still he's still fine, isn't he? He got he sounded great on that. I think that was last year, Nina. He's driving. He's uh, he's a super super guy he's and he's very devoted to her and yeah. he's very loving like their whole life um since they were about 20 they met i think it's good for him now because he was kind of stuck to the house in a way because she wouldn't go out yeah. and um now he i think he feels a bit of relief i think he told turtle he was in his 90s 93 it's nuts like wow really sharp and uh he sends us a lot of packages like regularly to my kids he takes newspaper cuttings out or he calls me when he's listening to the radio and he hears something he's like this is a show you should tune in and uh he's he's great he's a really great dad when you were small they had O'Donoghue's what was that like Nina that must have been crazy I really liked it like I grew up working in bar in there in O'Donoghue's uh, I, I went in from you know very young and collected glasses and then I just was a floor girl and I kind of grew up in like it was always jam-packed like really squashy packed and as a kid and smoker and everyone was very drunk and so I used to just squeeze through the crowd on my own as a kid it's kind of nuts when you look back kids don't really do that now nobody was really watching me I was kind of walking around this packed bar my home a lot of my childhood (laughs) it's it's uh it was pretty cool because it was constant traditional Irish music sessions uh, with, you know, the best musicians. It, uh, it was a very rich experience. I, I loved it. And it also, you know, was got me into this social thing. Yeah. It was very easy for me to be around people from having 10, nine siblings and then being there all the time. Yeah, yeah. You'd said something lovely like, um, I think you said you had a sister who went to America and you used to send stuff back in terms of music and stuff like this to you. Uh, she's still there. She came back for the funeral. So she left when I was six. Like you get that with big families, don't you? That like three kids might be close or something. And I think the last three of us were like a little family in itself. And then when nieces and nephews started to be born when I was still a kid and then I was just as close to them as I was to closer. The eldest siblings yeah on an old press release nina you were talking about i think it it was either a sister or an aunt gave you a tape recorder and used to bring home tapes from from the hospital of of machines hospital heart machines heartbeats um for people who were in the hospital uh, she worked there and it was actually my sister in america who sent me this his amazing tape recorder it was it was like a oval shape and it had a tinted little lid on it and uh you could record stuff on it and play and so 
she used to bring me these tapes from the hospital and all the heartbeats were on it. It was, it was amazing. I loved it. I used to spend hours and hours on my own recorder. <laughs> Music concrete or something, you know? Yeah, totally. It's kind of weird when looking back, but I used to imagine, I'd sit there listening and I'd imagine, you know, whose heart was it? Oh, uh, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. What age are you? I was about um, seven, eight, nine the tape recorder lasted a few years and, and then it just disappeared. I, I, don't, I don't know where it went. When did you start playing music, Nina? Was it in your teens or? I wrote my first song when I was eight and then I didn't really write much. I wrote a lot of poetry and I played piano and uh, I guess I guess I was probably about 18 when I started writing then. Right. Songs, because I bought a guitar. Like I used to... You know, I, I used to speak, it's kind of very arty, but I used to write, play piano and speak poetry. Mm. It was a different kind of a thing. And it wasn't really a song, but I did write a song when I was eight. And then I bought a guitar. That was really easy to write on compared yeah. to piano for yeah. some reason. Piano was more kind of dream. It was more dreamy and, and it was more of a world where a song, the guitar was more direct. It was more like, this is a song. And were you taking it seriously from 18, Nina? Yeah, I'm, I mean, my parents, because I was number 10, they, they gave me a lot of freedom yes. to just be whatever I wanted to be. They could see that being strict didn't really work with the older kids. So they decided to have me as a little experiment and, and see. They, they used to call me the experiment. And they just kind of let me do what I wanted to do. And I did go to college for one year. Um, to do French and Spanish in Trinity and they were very proud because none of their other kids went to Trinity and I didn't like it at all so I I had started writing songs that year and and I started busking um, on Grafton Street and had a boyfriend who was a saxophone player and we decided to go traveling so we went traveling busking and it just became who I was really quickly I, I never thought about it I, did, I didn't think about it as a career or anything I wasn't thinking in, in career terms, you know, it was a, I don't know, my parents must have been freaked out. Um, and then I went to live in Donegal for a year, went to Ballyliffin, six kilometres north of Carndonna. And uh, I don't know if you know that part of the country, it's really beautiful. It's kind of wild and Rugged. sea, like hills go on for miles and so I really just started focusing on songs and, and then came back again and started busking. And it just all happened very easily. Like I uh, started going to the international bar and then got a band together, started playing wheelins and then got offered this deal and I lost the number. It was really whacked out. My first offer was from these two guys who saw me busking. They left 20 quid, which was a lot of money in the thing. And I was like, God. they were two Americans and they... Um, they seem to have won a lot of, like they'd won the lotto or no, they, they got a lot of money from, I don't know, from somewhere they had a lot of money. And so they wanted to record me in a church on my own. And um, they gave me their number and I gave them mine. And that weekend, my phone got cut off with no mobiles and I lost their number and I never did that. So uh, then I met another American and, and then ended up putting out my first two records and he set up a label to release my first two records. Yeah, I remember that period. The first time I saw you with the full band was um, supporting Stereo Lab in the Red Box. Red Box, yeah. That not that where the, the uh, pod. pod? That's it, yeah. That would have been around the time of creation. It was around 1998, 1999. Because yeah. I remember that gig, there were, there were a few labels over to see us from England, so it was kind of nerve wracking. Stereo Lab were so lovely because I, I broke a string just before going on stage and the guitarist from that band fixed it for me uh, and they were so sweet. Yeah, that was a big gig for ye, I remember. Really, it was big because I was a fan. I really, really loved them and I, I saw them. I'd only recently gotten into them, you know, about a year before and I saw them the night before in the Trinity, Trinity Ball. Ball. Yeah. I just thought they're so cool. They're really amazing. Yeah. That it was, it was that. It wasn't the fact that there were a lot of people there. I think I'd played gigs as big as that or, more, or bigger at the time, but it was just the fact that I loved them so much. That was really exciting. Yeah. But it, if we go back a bit, because 
I thought I knew kind of your music story, so to speak, Nina. And then when I was talking to Cahal Coughlin a few weeks ago, he mentioned that the Hector Zazu stuff. I didn't know that part of your story, Nina. And Cahal was talking about um, playing one of these big multi-artist shows. He was really quick to kind of go, Jesus, I was only, I had a small part. It was Nina's, you know, thing. Yeah, I think it was one song, maybe it was two. Uh I didn't know him. It was it was through Zazu. Uh, Zazu and him had been writing letters to each other. Yeah, the Zazu thing was random. Like most everything is random that happens to me. <laughs> There's never any plan. It was soon after I got back from Donegal and I was busking and the DAC club was on going on. And I did this gig where I was playing piano and I was kind of whacked out. You know, it was pretty experimental. And before I got my band together, I was... There was a lot of wailing. There was a lot of, it was kind of mental, you know. And so Zazu came to that. I was kind of looking for the the edges of my voice. Yeah. I wasn't, I was very bored with just singing a simple song. I was really not interested in just making pretty songs and, you know, having a nice melody. What well, At the time yeah. that didn't impress me. And um, I think Zazu was very attracted to that kind of, weirdness and um he came up and afterwards we chatted and then I got a phone call a few weeks later asking would I come and record in France and And wasn't it Barbara Gogan made the introduction and how did you know Barbara Gogan Barbara I had just met her like the previous week Barbara and Zazu were together uh for years and uh Barbara it was actually Barbara who called me and Barbara said Zazu wants to work with you um you should do it. He's really, he's really great. And I had never heard of him and uh, she convinced me to do it. And um, she had released an album or she was finishing an album that she'd done with him just then. I suppose I should say, you know, I only know that one song that Barbara's band, The Passions. With the German film stuff. I covered that later on with Cattell. Kind of. That's right. It was a B-side yeah. to one of her singles, wasn't it? Yeah, we recorded it on my four track. I recorded it on my four track, which is nuts. It's also tape, like really bad quality. That was fun. Did you know who Hector was? And I didn't even know. Like I was so ignorant. I didn't even know who Harold Budd was. We did a tour with Harold Budd with Hector's I do, and I didn't even know who he was. He was just this nice guy to me. And there were all these old guys. They were like there was Christian de Chevretel. He was a trumpet player, and Harold. And Zazu and me, that was the band. And then there was this guy, Alex C, who is the sound engineer, who has since become this DJ called Alex Kidd. And now he creates all this technology. And uh, we're the only two alive, Alex C and I. I was just about to say that. Didn't Harold Budd pass away from COVID, I think, didn't he? Uh, a year ago, maybe? I didn't know that. Yeah. I wasn't in touch. I have a friend uh, like who, who was a good friend of his. Uh, for since that time she met him around the same time in, in Paris when we were in Paris so come here though what was that like to go from the international bar the da club and then you're suddenly touring with these guys I hadn't really done anything I'd just been I just literally started about two months playing in venues from the international bar went into the da club this new thing started where they started carrying it in there and it was literally one of my first gigs and Zazu was there going come and do an album and I was like okay that's just crazy isn't it yeah and it kind of took it kind of changed the direction of my life because his approach to music was very experimental and very art orientated even though he really longed for, to be an indie to have an indie hit yeah like uh like he would have loved to, you know, he loved Massey Star and he would have, he loved Bjork. He would have loved if we had done something like that, you know. And uh, it kind of took my life in that kind of, for a long time, it took it in a kind of a weirdo direction yeah. until I got my band together and started playing Whelan's. And then we became more kind of, I don't know what it was, indie, whatever they call it. Pop, I suppose pop. so. I don't know. When you recorded with Zazu, was that your first time in a recording studio? No, um, I'd been in one. Uh, I'd been in two. Um, Glenn Hansard saw me busking yeah. uh, before Zazu saw me busking or around that time. And he really liked it. And he said, do you want to go in the studio and record some songs? I was like, yeah. So I went in that night with Glenn straight away. And it was in off Grafton Street. We went to this 
studio was it Sun? It was possibly Sun Studios. And his friend Fiek was the engineer. And uh, we just recorded about five songs live. So I'd been in that studio. And then another friend was engineering in, uh, I mean, it's so mad now when you look back. What were those big studios that you two had? Windmill Lane, I think. Studio A was the first studio I ever recorded in. It's been, <laughs> it's been downhill since, you know. <laughs> friend engineering there and he was like, I love your song. Do you want to go and record it um, in Windmill Lane? I was like, I didn't even know what Windmill Lane was. And I said, yeah, okay. I was very relaxed. I wasn't, I really wasn't out there looking for anything. I was just playing my music. You know, I met nice people along the way who said, do you want to do this? And I'm always up for adventure. And I love collaborating. So that band then that you got together, the band I saw in the Red Box when you were supporting Stereo Lab, that's the band you recorded Creation with then, wasn't it? I don't think that Dave Hingerty played with me at the Stereo Lab gig. And he played on Creation and on Staros. Um, I think it was another guy called Robin Ball. I think, I might be wrong, but we were in this kind of phase. I think we just got back from a tour of America. I don't remember. The time is kind of molding into one kind of blurry thing. Um, but if we'd just gotten back from the tour of America, we oh, there was also Wayne Sheehy who played drums with me so I think we had a different drummer and it felt like we were in this weird place mm. I felt like we weren't in a great place when we did that gig whereas for me the best band we had was the first lineup of Joe Shane and Dave Shane Fitzsimons and Dave Hingerty and Joe Chester that for me was like the magic and then we had that for about a year and then Dave joined the frames and then I felt I felt like it was never the same. It was just something else. And then we went to America and we toured and fell apart. Yeah, so we must have done Stereo Lab before the American tour. I moved up to Dublin in, I think, 97, maybe. They were an exciting couple of years, weren't they? Those late 90s. There was an energy about town, wasn't there? It was very exciting, really. It felt like anything was possible. People were starting to make music uh, just for music. They weren't looking at you know, England to get a record deal. There was a feeling of anything could happen, make loud noise bands. Like, do you remember the idiots? I do indeed, yeah, yeah. And I loved going to those kind of noisy, mad gigs that, you know, just they'd they'd play one chord for an hour, (laughs) you know, sing something drony. And I was really into that kind of thing. And the Project Arts Centre had a lot of experimental gigs that I used to take part in and... I loved that scene and there was a, I mean, I think it was more like 2003, 2004, there was a, a gig in a castle in the countryside and it had about 50 experimental and kind of indie bands. Electronic stuff was creeping in and it was, it was really exciting. It was very creative. Did you go out of your minds on a, an American tour? Was it really stressful, kind of those big long drives? And- Terrible. Um, although... I did a couple of tours, I think I did three, but I did two on my own and one with the band. And the one with the band was with another band as well called 10 Speed Racer, who had signed to the same label. That's right. My manager who set up the label. I remember that, Nina. Friends of mine had a a little office in Space 28. Yeah, I was always there. So there was a real kind of hive of activity around Space 28, wasn't there? I think Brown Bag Animation were in there at the time, Nina. There was a recording studio in the bottom, in the, in the ground floor. It was really quite an exciting place. Uh, and I started doing my first ever emails there <laughs> because uh, they had a computer and... Uh, Internet access. Crazy dial-up. So what was that tour of America with 10 Speed Racer like? Was that? Well, I was the only girl. That must be hard. Guys and How many? Sorry, how many? I think it felt like there were. Maybe there were, I don't know, there were two bands. So there's my band and their band and Driver. And I'm not sure if my manager was there. Don't think he was there for some of it. Dave had already left to join the frames and... Oh, Finn, Finn O'Leary played drums. He was great fun. Uh, but he kind of stood in at the last minute to be in the band for the tour. Um, and he actually was really great energy on the tour because he was so excited to be in a band. And yeah. we had gone through this whole journey of, it was very emotional. And I had asked this guy, Nico, who now lives in Iceland, to join on, you know, samples and keys. And 
Joe didn't really get on well with Nico and there was just this weird because I guess Nico was taking up these frequencies that Joe used to have the whole landscape of yeah and then suddenly Nico was in the same audio field that Joe would use to have that be have the rain over mm. and Nico wasn't as controlled as Joe Joe was very very specific and very controlled and Nico was kind of a wild card he, he was kind of random and Joe didn't like that and well that was my impression and so it created a lot of tension and uh, Joe started hanging out a lot and he already did because we were really good friends with 10 Speed Racer. And so when we came back from the tour, Joe joined 10 Speed Racer. I just met Shane and I was like, I don't want to do it anymore without Joe. Yeah. Uh, and so that was the end of the band. And that was before Staros, it was creation we made. Were the songs for Staros, were they written sometime around, you know, after that American tour or... When you got back, I think I don't remember what year the tour was. I think it was either I actually I think it was either ninety eight, ninety nine, two thousand or two thousand and one. Okay. I don't know. No, I think I toured after that on my own. I think that was the first first tour, um, probably ninety nine then. But it was really exciting. Like we played four gigs in New York, and we played in Washington. We played uh, Seattle. No, Seattle and the West Coast came later on my own. But we did an East Coast tour, I think. Played loads of cool, cool little places. Wasn't the guy who ran that label, wasn't he American, I think? Yeah, yeah. He came to my Whelan's gig and um, one of the gigs and he met my dad there. My dad was at the gig. You could hear my dad at the back of the gig. He was the only person talking in any of my gigs. You'd hear him at the back talking and I'd be like, could someone tell my dad to shut up? The manager that figured out it was my dad. So he gave him his number. And I was working in my dad's bar at the time, washing dishes. And my dad gave me the number and he was like, call him, call him. And I was like, no, I'm not calling him. I don't, my instinct was no, I don't want to. But he kept, he came, he knew I was working. My dad told him I worked in the bar. So he called in and uh, he left his number in the bar again. He kept, you just kept calling. He kept going, I want to manage you. And it's weird, you know, because he did a lot of good for me and he created a buzz and everything, but it turned very badly and he closed a lot of doors because I had other people come and, and tell me afterwards why they didn't want to work with me it was because of him and I went through a journey in my life because of him and it was really quite heavy and it was really uh, it was it was the wrong road somehow but at the same time it was the right road because it made me who I am and you know I am who I am because of that um, but my instinct was right. It's funny how, you know, I didn't listen to it. I, I guess it's so exciting. And he was really enthusiastic and he really believed in me. Like, like nobody I'd ever met. He, he really believed in me. So, you know, you have to value that somehow. How does that change your attitude towards those songs and that album? I never listened to them ever again and I never played them. Yeah, they were soured. But he also released my first album, Staros, and that felt soured too. Um, but I, I also have the nature of I move on and I, I tend to forget my own songs. Um, I have to relearn them. I don't keep playing them. I keep writing new stuff constantly. So unless I consciously go, I'm going to learn, the, I'm going to practice, I'm going to learn these songs, I forget about them. And uh I absolutely just moved on and, and created new stuff and forgot about it. I can understand that, Nina, but as well, it's a shame in one way, isn't it? Because it's a fabulous record and it's something you should be so proud of, you know? Never, I never thought much of it. I never, I never thought it was very good. Um, I don't, there's no, there are no regrets at all. Absolutely none. Um, but somehow... I think I needed to move away to be on my own, to be just my own sound, you know, not. I was looking back at it and listening back to it, Nina, um, in the last week or two, and um, a couple of things struck me. Um, you thank literally, I'd say, everyone you ever met in in music on the sleeve of that record. It's extraordinary. There's this, it's as if you're going, I might never get this chance again. So I'm going to thank everyone that's ever done anything for me in music. 
It's funny you say that because my my last album, Zap, all the crowdfunders are written on the back of the album. And somebody said, wow, that's really, that's really cool that you did that. And, and, and I thought, well, of course I did it. You know, it wouldn't be there if it wasn't for exactly. them. Exactly, exactly. Like a lot of the time people, people do things for other people and, and they don't realize the effect that they have on them or how they've had them or, and so it's, it's nice to do that, I think. Yeah, and there's a special dedication to your mum and dad actually on the album. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know more. There you, there you go. Well, I only looked at it the other day, you see. Wow. That's 20 years ago, Nina. Does it feel like 20 years? It feels like 120 years. Really? Um, yeah, it feels... You're that far removed from it. I really am. I, like, I'm, I'm, I'm a different person. I, I, I feel like... I feel like looking back and I sometimes have seen videos of myself and I feel like somebody else. I feel like I really do. I, I've lived many lives since then. And uh, <laughs> it just, it really is a bit cringy, you know, looking back. But uh, I don't really care. I take myself so seriously. But it is a bit like, oh, I hate myself. <laughs> I feel like, God, look at her. The next time I saw you play, it was actually, I can't remember, was it before or after this album came out, Stars came out? It was Terry Callier played, I think it was the Ambassador Theatre. Yeah. Now, I mentioned that to you before on social media because I'd found the flyer <laughs> and you said to me, you said that he was really sweet and that he'd watched your gig from the side of the stage and he came up to you afterwards to chat about it. We had a good 10 minute chat and he was just lovely. And also... There's my ignorance again. I didn't know him. I didn't know his music before that gig. And we had a great band that night as well. It was a really, some of the, oh, what was that band? The Jimmy Cake. Some of the Jimmy Cake were playing with me. And uh, it was, it was yeah. really lovely. Yeah, that was a, that was a band later, The Husbands. And that um, John from the Jimmy Cake. But actually John didn't play that night, but the Simon played. He was playing all these little dinky little things. Uh, but Terry was just proper artist you know he's just there for the music and he's into music so he's like oh who's this I'll come and, and see and it's often amazing I've supported some really brilliant well-known people like did I read Nina that you played with Jeff Buckley in Belfast that time in the mid-90s is that right yeah I, I didn't support him uh, it was actually Glenn Mozart was playing with him. It was Glenn, wasn't it? Glenn had seen me busk. It was around the time Glenn asked me to go into the studio. I didn't know Glenn very well. He was playing with Jeff. He was a friend of Jeff's. Through the commitments, that whole thing. I had seen Jeff playing Whelan's the night before. I was, I was just, I never had experienced anything like Jeff Buckley before that. It was, it was just, it blew my mind. And I had to go see him the next night in Belfast again. So I went to Belfast. I had no money. I was going to on a bus. I didn't, I didn't know where I was going to stay. Um, I got there and I went to the sound check because uh, I knew that Glenn was playing with him and, and I had met Glenn a few times. I think he'd already brought me into the studio at this stage. And uh, so I watched the sound check and uh, then the gig started soon after. And uh, then they were playing and then Glenn just invited me on stage and uh, uh, I was, what she was like, I keep thinking in German, I'm remembering words in German of how to say this, um, but it was just, I was terrible and I was embarrassing because it was, it was a Van Morrison song in Belfast. <laughs> I didn't know it. That's, I'm just, I'm from another planet than these boys. They're like, they had this education that I didn't have. I had a different kind of education and I had heartbeats from the Matter Hospital. They had Bob Dylan and and, and Van uh, Van Morrison, and uh, so they he started singing, and he just kept going, "Sing, baby, sing!" And I'm like, so I just started going, ah, like singing laws and stuff like that, and and it was fine, it was fun, and it, I was harmonizing with what they were singing, which I find easy to do, so it was it was fine, but um, he was brilliant. That's an incredible experience to be able to talk about, isn't it? I guess. I mean, I've never said it that often because I didn't really do much. I just stood there while they sang. I read a funny story from the uh, the manager of the Limelight said um, on Jeff Buckley's rider, it had said a selection of sodas. 
And he thought it, he thought he wanted soda bread. So he put a basket of soda bread into the green room. And Jeff Buckley was, you know, too nice and quiet to say, no, I actually just wanted some minerals. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. Isn't that fantastic, isn't it? <laughs> That's really just the, funny. Just the clash of cultures, uh, you know? Yeah. I think he came back and he might have done the Tivoli maybe a year afterwards. Like, oh, no, I saw him play that time in Whedon's and then I saw him play the Tivoli, saw him play Belfast. I think there was one other gig. Did he play twice in Whedon's? I'm not sure. No. I think so. I think so. Yeah, maybe. You've been in Berlin for, is it, it's gone on, is it nearly 10 or 15 years now, is it? Yeah, since 2007. Wow. So no wonder you're thinking in German there. My German's actually not fluent, but I there's certain words. They, they there's a lot. It's a it's a great language actually, and there are certain words like earlier I was thinking of peinlich, which means embarrassing. It it kind of fits well with the feeling because it's like I'm pining inside. It's kind of like oh peinlich, you know. And that's it kind of they have a good way of sometimes saying words that that it's like onomatopoeia. It's really feel like they feel the word, you know. But yeah, since 2007, March. And tell me, is Zap the best record you think you've made? Yeah, in some ways it is. Um, because, and I, I really love Really, Really Do with the husbands. I'm, I, I'm, I'm attached to that record song-wise and yeah. production-wise. And But Zap is very special because I recorded and played everything on my own and mixed it myself. And I'd never done that yeah. before. And, oh, I love Dancing Sons as well. So... Staros and creation are just, bleh, whatever. <laughs> I know that you like them. I guess we all tend to resonate with our newer selves. Yeah, of um, course. But I feel they're richer lyrically. I used to be, I used to be too easy on myself. Like um, I'm, a, I'm a little more, I work a bit more on, on trying to say it the right way now rather than just saying it. And I, I'm quite, I'm very excited by being able to work on a song on my own without any interferences, um, time-wise, being able to just get sucked into it on my own. It's, it's really intense. You've been putting out a few songs over the last year, Nina. Is there an album brewing? I tended to, I tended to just record, write, Record as I write it, produce it, upload it. Forget about making an album. Um, I haven't been thinking in terms of an album. Uh, I've been learning traditional harp and I'm thinking in terms of uh, a musical. I'm working with dancers a lot and um, I'm currently doing a project with a dancer, choreographer, actor, and we are working on this thing. We've been working since... I guess a year. I'm thinking more in terms of that rather than an album. But I mean, I don't know. But you were you were always interested in the kind of the visual side of things and kind of multimedia ideas and yeah. You know. And I, I guess I studied theatre before music. I, I got I thought I was going to be an actress. I didn't think I was going to be a musician. And um, I thought I was going to be an actress and a photographer. I never thought I'd be a musician. <laughs> it's funny how life happens. So you, like you got sidelined. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I went to um, the Focus Theatre for about a year every week to Deirdre. She was, uh, was Deirdre? She was married to Luke Kelly. Deirdre. Was it Deirdre Kelly? No, it was Deirdre. I have to look it up because I, I can't believe I've forgotten. Um, but she was really intense. Um, and just spending the whole day in the focus theater. And I went to a lot of plays when I was in school. And, you know, there's there's that in me that I love. I love that side of things. I found a lovely little one sentence description of Starus from the um, the CMJ. I think it would have been around the time you played, probably around the time you did gigs in New York, I would imagine. I don't know, did you do the convention or, you know, it's one of those music industry events, but they described you as um, adventurous Irish songstress, <laughs> delivers 21st century folk tunes with dazzling electronic jewels. Wow, I've never heard that. That's cute. That's not bad. I'm in the 21st century 
I kind of, I fall between heart on sleeve, vulnerable folk stuff. And then I have this other side that's more fun kind of character and electronic and, and kind of sonic. Do you know what struck me as well, Nina, looking back? The word cookie and giddy are used quite a lot by reviewers. That's really funny. Cookie. Oh, it's cookie. Maybe it's a way of describing a woman maybe as well, is it? Is that what these reviewers are doing? Yeah, I mean, I definitely wasn't what they were looking for. Uh, a lot of the time in the, in the, in the music industry, I, I was something else. I didn't fit whatever it was they were looking for. And uh, I think when I, I remember, you know, apart from Sinead O'Connor and then the frames would have been just before my time, they were... You know, uh, I feel like there was a lot of very, very straight music, like really formulaic, obvious, obvious, horrible, standard music that I wasn't interested in. And I mean, I loved, I was a big fan of the Velvet Underground and that's straight too, you know, in a way, the straight up songs, but but there's an there's an edginess there's an edge that it. was missing in a lot of the music coming out of Ireland. I felt there was a, I feel people were, up until that point, the people were. I felt they were they were making music to get record deals, and it was it was very kind of looking towards England and looking towards what was gone before. And I don't know. I I kind of was more excited by trying new stuff and uh, trying new ideas that I hadn't heard before or. And I feel at the same time I was doing it, not so long after it was like a thing. And now everybody's doing it. And I think when I started doing it, there were a few people doing it. And, and then it just became, that's what people do. People are more creative, I think now. And they have more tools. And I mean, there were, there were always the kind of raw, vulnerable artists creating on the edge. There were always, they've always existed. But I'm just talking about the people who were writing about music, people who were signing music, people who were playing in the main venues. I guess they were mostly boys um, and they were mostly straight up, you know, what's coming next in the song kind of music. So 20 years since that album, Nina, and if I had to ask you, you know, I'm going to ask you, you know, if you had to pick one song from Starless. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember what's on it. There was Universal, Time Flies, Jimmy Behan, which I loved. That's tenderness, isn't it? I really loved that one because it was so like, just kind of fell off the planet. Um, tenderness, there was, uh, there was I'll Take You With Me When I Go. I can't remember the name of it at the end. Chivago Blue, that one. Oh, Chivago Blue. I love Chivago Blue. That was so beautiful to play because... Um, I remember it was in Black Box in France and I remember Dave Hingerty, I remember I had two matches and I said, can you make it sound like the two matches on the thing? And, and he was just so open. He was always really open to trying anything. And uh, so he was breaking stuff off the stick to try and make it sound like that. And then Dave Odlum was just creating the best drum sound in the world. Like at the time on the snare, like the little compressed, like like a biscuit tin, you know, um, and we were playing it live. Like I was playing it, the guitar opposite him as he was playing Dave. Um, it was just the two of us. And uh, I love, I love that um, we kept it really bare, that song. Um, I guess it was a, a nice album. There's just a bit some, but there are some naff lyrics on it. Um, overall, I, I liked um, the textures and the music. I, I still love that. Um, maybe Swallow is a bit embarrassing, that song, but I enjoyed playing that a lot because it was like really kind of rhythmical guitar, which I often would be more plucky. Um, yeah, I haven't started. When you listen back to stuff you've created before, you, you hear things and you remember, you know, the idea and you remember putting it there, but you've forgotten you put it there. And I think I was probably... Uh, you know, we re we recreate, we re um, repeat patterns. Uh, still, I still am attracted to the same, probably the same 
textures. I think it's a great record, Nina. I think you should be really proud of it. Oh, thanks. Um, I can't believe it's 20 years, but uh, it is. I'm really glad that we finally managed to record this, Nina, and chat about it. About missing it twice. Like, That's all right. Sometimes I feel like there's something missing in my brain. There's something like I'm lacking. <laughs> <laughs> I miss dentist appointments sometimes. And, and sometimes I'm really, really precise and I'm late. I'm perfectly on time all the time. But then I miss the appointments. Like lately I had two dentist appointments and, you know, I rearranged the second one because I missed the first one. And then I missed the second one. And it's in both calendars. I have three calendars. It's probably the problem. Yeah, I have one calendar in the kitchen from Brighton, one on my phone, and I have one on the computer. You need and to sync them somehow. Nina, it's been lovely chatting to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. I can't wait to hear what comes next. I've been really enjoying the tracks. Thanks so much. Um, I am doing a gig in Ireland. When's it, that happening, Nina? It's it's Cordia Arts Festival, and it's um on the ferry to Inishfree. Oh, wow. It's going to be nice. It'll be on the ferry? On the ferry, yeah. Wow. I think so. Brilliant. And that'll be you on your own? No, I've got Sean Carpio, who um, he plays in Dancing Sons, is one of Dancing Sons, and um, Ruth O'Mahony Brady, who plays with Glenn Hansard, and many other people. Like she's, they're both two of my favorite creative, brilliant people. Uh, so they kind of will create a world with me and make some magic. Oh, that sounds brilliant. Well, that's something for us to look forward to, Nina yourself yeah you mind yourself and thanks a million for doing this nina you're welcome thank you for giving me attention slon bye
thanks again to Nina Hines. And that song was Zhivago Blue, and it's taken from Starus, and you'll find Starus on Spotify. Nina's most recent record, Zap, is available from Bandcamp. So go to at Learn and Sing on Twitter or paulmcdermott.ie forward slash podcast and you'll find links to those records as well as episode notes with lots of further information about some of the things I discussed with Nina. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe, like and share. So this episode features the youngest album I've discussed on the podcast to date. I can say that the next episode is going to feature the oldest album, a landmark Irish album from 1979. And that episode is going to be available in the next few weeks. The theme music, as always, is Irish Rhapsody Redux. It's by Mark Healy. It's his reworking of a recording of the New Light Symphony Orchestra's version of Victor Herbert's Irish Rhapsody. Until the next episode, goodbye.